Well, church, if you're able, would you stand with me as we look to God's word in the scriptures? We'll be in Exodus chapter 5, verse 22, reading all the way to the end of chapter 6. Infallible word. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you've not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri, the sons of Usiel, Mishael, Elsaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashan, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph, 
These are the clans of the Kohathites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? The word of the Lord. Now you can be seated. Thank you, Pastor Ian. Expertly read. Um, I think when we think of the great heroes of the faith, we wonder, you know, did they ever want to quit? Did they ever go so far as to blame God, or even further yet, to blame God for doing evil, or for accusing God of failing to follow through on his promises? And yet here we have, at the end of chapter 5 of Exodus, just that, don't we? Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to your people? Why did you ever send me? And you know what, God? You haven't delivered on your promises at all. So for Moses, God is in the dock that he's tried to minister. He's done it on his own strength. The more he's exerted himself, the worse things materially, uh, the worse they become. And so you ask yourself at the end of chapter 5, and, you know, a lot of people these days talking about justice and, you know, you wanting God's justice. You say, at the end of chapter 5, what would justice look like? Say, here's Moses. He's been called from the burning bush brought out of Midian, given this amazing task of leaving, leading the people out of bondage in Egypt. You say, God has done so much for him. And what does he say? God, you're evil. You've forgotten your promises, and I want to quit. You say, justice there, I think, would be striking Moses down with some lightning. You say, there's your justice. What's God going to do? Things are deteriorating. He's made a promise, and the promise seems so far off. And the great hero of the story, right, the great protagonist, if you will, is failing. Moses is at the end. But God, again, instead of executing justice here, what we see is him responding with grace. Say, how much in Exodus? It might not have occurred to you. You think Exodus and the great story there. Do you see the grace God extends to his people and what he's going to do with them and through them. And what he does instead, then, as I've entitled this message, an emancipation proclamation, that God gives uh, a proclamation of liberty. Yes, no, not Lincoln after Antietam, but much grander than that. God saying, I will free my people. So when we're at the end, when things look to be lost, when God seems to be failing, what actually do we rely on? Just two points here today. I want us to think about God's power and God's relationship with his people. Power and relationship. First, power. You know, as Ian read expertly, you will have noticed how many times that little phrase, I will, is used in Exodus 6. So starting right in verse 1, right? Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. 
then they're really clustered between verses 6 and 8. Just catalog them, right? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. You say, who's the I? Say, the I is God. It's not, Moses, you better get your act together here. You got to toughen up. Uh, what else do you need? For you? you know, you're on your, I, you know, I, I've given you what you need, Moses. Come on. What God says is, I will do it. See, m- marvelously, we serve a God who takes action. <laughs> he says, I'm going to demonstrate this right before Pharaoh. I'm going to enter in, and I'm the one who's going to do it, Moses, not you. You know, verse 6, I think we've heard about this, maybe not reflected on it, but this notion of the outstretched arm. The outstretched arm of God. So he built a symbol of power, but also something we do when we, you know, might take an oath. And that's what God's doing. With an outstretched arm, a show of my power, and quite frankly, a pledge that I'm going to deliver the people, Moses. There's an emancipation proclamation. I'm going to get my people out because that's what I'm doing, redeeming a people. And Moses, it's going to be what I do, not what you do. Great sign of God's power. And I think in this chapter, we begin to see a few answers to the questions we've had so far. So here are some questions we've probably had. Why did God wait so long to deliver his people? It's been 480 years, a very long time. It might be understandable, say God made a promise, and now here we are all these, you know, not just a couple weeks later, but I mean hundreds and hundreds of years, the ones to whom the promise was originally made are long deceased. Uh, You know, the promise has lost its way among the people. Uh, Why did God wait so long? Why did God allow things to get worse before they could become better? We don't like that. I, I like that steady arc of progress that we talk about these days, right? So I like things improving. I reject the status quo like all of you, right? We got to keep going and marching and improving. And we've seen actually just the opposite, a regression, that things have become worse for the people of God. It's become harder. They're, they're more bitter. They're angrier. By every metric, what we talked about last week, by every metric, they're in worse position. Where's the progress, God? Why did God permit Moses to come to the end of himself. Why would God preserve those lines at the end of chapter 5 that one of the great figures of our faith wanted to quit and curse God? Why did God do that? See, I think in chapter 6, we begin to get a glimpse to those, the answers to those big questions. So I submit, uh, we'll look at a few corporate dimensions, uh, what this might have taught the people of God, Israel, and then in individual dimensions. So first, corporately, I hope what's obvious to all of us now in reading these first six chapters is that Israel could not save itself. That as they've tried now for many, many centuries, no doubt they've raised up people a lot more impressive than Moses, right? That's been clear too. Moses is by no means the most impressive figure. In fact, he's a weak figure. And uh, they would have produced a lot of figures, and they probably had all kinds of dreams and aspirations and, you know, prospects of rebellion, whatever it would have. But by this point, what we have to see very obviously is that there was no way Israel could extricate itself from the bondage of the Egyptians. In fact, the more they tried, right, when they thought, oh, this is our best chance, 
they're more ensnared. You know, good, good image of this. I remember some years ago, maybe I've used it before. It sticks in my mind. Some years ago, I'm touring a prison, as maybe you do when you go to see these old prison. They're telling me, the tour guide's telling me about the barbed wire. Very interesting technology on the barbed wire. And what the tour guide's saying is, say, if somebody uh, tries to, if you will, liberate himself from the prison to get out to be free, and they get caught on the barbed wire, the more you struggle in the barbed wire, the deeper the hooks go. <laughs> that the more you exert yourself, the more trapped you are. And I say, that's exactly the image that we have here of our own bondage, right? The more I say, I'm gonna rise up and free myself. I'm an enlightened man. I wanna have the world at my fingertips. Allow me to self-actualize and show everybody else what a, what a free and great person I am. The more that I do that, the more ensnared I am. That's always the case, I think. I hope the Christian realizes, right? If you are a Christian, this is precisely what you've come to realize, that you've been at points in your life, that God in his kindness has given you points in your life where you've said, you know what? I'm ensnared, and I can't get out myself. I need a, a voice and a power from the outside because I can't save myself. So I think why there's been this great buildup and why God and his kindness to us has shown us how desperate the position of God's people are is to communicate very clearly that we can't save ourselves, God's people can't save themselves, and the more we listen to the voices of trying to do it ourselves, uh, quite frankly, the more painful and ensnared we will be. So lesson number one. Secondly, look at verse seven. That God's doing all this, and we'll come back to this in a few different angles, but one line here that I want the people to know that language, I want them to know uh, this to be true, to know that I am their Lord, that language of knowing. The whole drama of Exodus is anchored, as so much of our faith is, is anchored in real history. I think that point is sometimes lost on us in the, you know, growing up in the Judeo-Christian West. You say, in the other world religions, historicity is not that important. You know, if you think of the other world religions, what they say is, oh, well, here are some nice ethical principles, many of which the ethical principles make a lot of sense. They say, here, we got some nice little nuggets for you. You unpack the nuggets and obey the nuggets, and, and that's, uh, you know, that's what the faith is. You know, deny yourself and, you know, do, do fasting and things like that. Our faith is so bold as to really anchor... Uh, God uh, condescends, and right, in his kindness, comes down into history and lays it all out in time and place, so much so uh, that denying that causes a real problem for our faith. So there have been theologians over the centuries, they say, you know, this is, this is a little bit embarrassing to the modern mind, isn't it? I mean, God turning, uh, you know, staffs into snakes and turning the water into blood and parting seas. And, you know, we modern people, that doesn't happen anymore, and we want to be sophisticated and cultured. Therefore, that must not have happened, but we can still have Exodus because it's a very nice story, isn't it? I mean, we love to watch films about this. Uh, so do we have the luxury of doing that? And I would submit to you that, no, we don't. That's the whole point. God says, look, I'm going to make this for people are very simple, our minds are clouded by our sin, that we're blinded by our sin. God's as if to say, I'm going to make this so plain. I'm going to make this so, so incredibly obvious to my people. I'm going to do incredible acts. I'm going to anchor them in history. I'm going to put on display who I am so that they will know, verse 7, so you will know that I'm God. That's why this drama is building. So the lessons again, 
Israel can't save itself. There's no self-liberating. The more they try, the worse it gets. Secondly, God's doing this so that we would know here in Avon that God acted in history. Let's not forget it. And thirdly, I think this long tension uh, is drawing a, a sharper contrast. You know the saying, very much a believer in this, that contrast is the mother of clarity. You want to find out what something is? Have a look at, at an opposite or an opposing view. And you remember right from the very beginning of Exodus, you see a, there's going to be a big face-off. On the one hand, you have Pharaoh, most powerful man in the Mediterranean world. So in some sense, he, well, he was a god, right? You've probably been and see, seen the mummies, and you know, you're reading the little plaques at the museums. You say, well, Pharaoh is god to the people, most powerful man, uh, non-believing man in the world. And then on this hand, you have the Midian shepherd that Yahweh is using. Now, who's going to win? Say, everybody's looking at it without the eyes of faith. You say, well, Pharaoh's going to win. He's the more powerful figure. And we, in our day, say this same tension emerges, right? Over here, you have the kind of cultural elites, uh, the uh, power of men, the control of men, uh, all that's happening in government. Say, it looks like, you know, this is where the power is. And what God's going to say, the power's not there. The power's over here. The power's with me. And so as Pharaoh goes, right, God has handed Pharaoh over, that Pharaoh is hardening his own heart by doing exactly what he wants to do, that the nooks and crannies of the human heart, there's plenty of evil and just one little nook and cranny of the human heart. That God has said, Pharaoh, I will let you be yourself. And in so doing, you see his cruelty, you see how unlikable he is, and we'll see God in his grace and kindness rescuing his people and reminding us that he's the one who takes vengeance. So the great buildup is forcing us, inviting us into a choice. Which side am I on? The way of the world, control, self-exertion, power, or the way of God? To come under him and let him work. Now, that's the corporate dimensions. Israel can't save itself. The people of God must know that God has acted. He's made it so very plain in history. And thirdly, that we're going to have a clear choice between the way of the world and the way of God. Now, individually... Moses. Let's look at this one line that might be a little bit odd to us, but it appears twice in verse 12 and then again in verse 30. Moses says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Now, some commentators, the majority of them, even the great John Calvin says, well, this is about Moses' speech impediment, which we've been over here before, right? Moses isn't a great speaker. So he's revisiting this of, well, you know, I, I'm not a great speaker, God, how can I do this? That could very well be the case. I'd say any time that a pastor like me goes against Calvin, that's a very bad thing. So I say I could very, very much be wrong about this. Uh, it could be Moses saying, you know, remember God, I don't speak well, I can't do this. But here's why I think something a little more is happening here that there's other times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, where we have uncircumcised body parts other than the obvious one. Jeremiah 6 and verse 10 talks about uncircumcised ears, and then elsewhere we hear of an uncircumcised heart. When those phrases are used, the uncircumcised ears and the uncircumcised heart, it's not about a deficiency. It's not about being hard of hearing or having a heart condition. But rather, what that means is that in our sin, we are not in a position to hear God or follow God. So I think when Moses says this, that there's a real sense in his soul that he's at the end of himself. 
that he is a very evidently broken man in verse 5, 22, and 23, which we've covered, and that he says, Lord, I can't do this because I am unfit for the office, that I am a sinner, I've called you into question, I don't want this job, I'm completely inadequate. Again, to put it in a word, I, I think that Moses has, has come to the end of his natural abilities, which must be a terrifying thing, but I hope it's a position everyone in the room's been in, because that's exactly the precondition. That's the one precondition to following Jesus. He's saying, God, I can't do it. I am at the end of myself. You see, you know, running through Scripture is the great paradox that when we're weak, when we feel like we can't do it ourselves, when all the world's going wrong, say, that's when God says, that, well, when you come to me, that's when my power's most evident. You might remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12, fam famous line there, right? St. Paul, the uh, battled some kind of malady. I think, to God's credit, we don't know exactly what it is. And God tells Paul, he says, you know, my power is made perfect in your weakness. You say, that is exactly the opposite. Our culture tells us to think about things. That the power comes when I'm at the end of myself. Say, isn't it supposed to be, well, my power comes when I build my resume? that my power comes as I hone my skills and that I outcompete everybody else, say, that's where the power is. That's where the respect is. That's what I'm trying to do with my life. Say, you got it all wrong. That self-assertion is the problem. But rather, we must be those, right? like Isaiah, echoes to Isaiah, right? Lord, I'm one of unclean lips. I'm not worthy. I can't do it myself. So why does God use Moses and Aaron, unimpressive figures? If we learn more about Moses, we're going to see how Aaron's inadequate. Why does God use these kinds of people? I think it's so we can look back and say, God, only you could do it. It's only you. I'm powerless in my life to bring about anything happiness, uh, you know, my own happiness or my own worthwhile, my own liberation. I need that help from the outside. God, I can't do it. I need you. You know, this idea here, an enslavement motif reminded me of a story I was told some years ago by a mentor of mine, now very old, old man, and he said, uh, yeah, back in the day, he told me the story, there was a young guy, probably about 20 years old, and he was uh, very handsome and uh, very smart and uh, very popular, it would seem, you know, you look at a 20-year-old young guy growing up, uh, you know, in the South, and you say, this guy has a very, very bright future. I mean, by every indication, he's got uh, all that it takes to succeed and live a very, what we call, happy life. And uh, as this young man, uh, one summer day, was out with his friends, and they were playing in a river, and there was a spot in the river where, you know, that it was uh, deep enough to dive. And uh, they're off diving, having a great time, as they did many, many Sundays, except uh, this particular individual on one occasion dove in a little bit of the wrong spot, and uh, went right into a rock. And they got him out of the river bed, and uh, it was very clear that he was uh, very injured. They took him to the hospital and tried to evaluate this now broken spine, and they learned in short time, they said, there's no hope, you'll never walk again. In fact, you'll be paralyzed from the neck down. No hands, fingers, no walking, that's it. And as I remember the story that he, my friend, the mentor, is able to come see this man, and I should add that at this point, prior to the accident, he would have been a nominal Christian. You know, say, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian, nothing else. So my friend comes to see him, and as I remember the story, 
The paralyzed boy is down, face down, as they're working on his back like this. All he could do is look down at the floor, knowing that he'd never move again. And my friend slips him a little piece of paper so his eyes could see as a little fragment of the King James Version of Psalm 62, 5. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Or in our versions, that my hope is from him. It's completely powerless. What else do you have but the hope that you have in God? Now, friends, I ask you, it might not take a paralysis for you, and we, quite frankly, we're a very clever congregation. We're an educated congregation. We're a congregation that has a lot of responsibilities, that we live in a world where resumes count for a lot in our circles, but I ask you, and I pray for you, that there are times in your life where you've come to the point, you say, I was at the end of myself. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get myself out. And I look back and I realize that only God could have done that. It was only by his power and his grace that rescued me. And I pray that you latch on to that memory, right? So that you know that he's the Lord, that we were powerless, that we needed him, that only he could sustain us and liberate us by his power. Say, that is what we need. We sing that hymn. You say, that hymn really convicts me, right? Lord, I need you. Do we really believe that? Say, no, Lord, I need myself a little bit more. Say, Lord, I really need you. I need your power. That Exodus 6, again, is about God telling Moses, yes, Moses, you're at the end of yourself, but I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and it is by my power that you will pursue uh, true kingdom work and things that matter. So God promises his people his power. Secondly, notice the language of relationship that God invites his people into a relationship with him. Again, a distinctive of our faith, right? Not ethics, but relationship. And it comes prominently, look at verses 4 and verse 5, the language, right? God of establishing his covenant. Big word biblically, covenant. Probably not a helpful game to play, but if you had, say, describe, uh, you know, the overarching theme of the Bible in one word. If you had to play, I'd say, well, covenant might be a good one. That God's established promises. He's made promises with the people that he's redeeming. Remarkable thing. God initiates to establish a people, to bring them out of the land, to be his in a very special way. So listen to how one popular uh, dictionary describes a covenant. So a covenant is a gracious undertaking entered into by God, right? He initiates for the benefit and blessing of man, humans, and specifically to those who by faith receive the promises and commit themselves to the obligations which this undertaking involves. So there you have it. God makes promises to his people, and then the people come under those promises, trust in those promises, and that is for our benefit and our, for our flourishing. And you get into the distinctiveness of the people of God, a theme that we must hit almost every week, it feels like, right? That are we supposed to be distinctive in the way that we live, where our allegiances are, what we listen to, who we pay attention? Absolutely. Why? Because we're the covenant people of God. We're those who've responded to what God is doing in his promise, that he's established us, that he's redeemed us, that we are his. And a couple of uh, features that go along with this is notice how God's name operates in Exodus 6. You see, it's kind of a very interesting line. Verse 3, 
God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, going back to Genesis, it's one story. The Bible's one story. In the same way, read Galatians 3. We're sons and daughters of Abraham, God redeeming a people himself. I revealed myself to them as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that's a tricky line. What's God saying here? Anytime in your English versions you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, so all four capitals, say that is the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. It is the personal name of God. Now, we do have Yahweh in Genesis, which raises questions again, what verse 3 means, but it seems to mean something like this. God, up to this point, has revealed himself primarily as the almighty covenant-making God. But in Exodus 6, he's going to say, I'm a personal God who's the covenant-keeping God, that I'll be your God, you'll be my people. That he's both powerful, God Almighty, see that wonderfully, verse 3, you get both. God Almighty, the powerful name of God, the one who has his will, even with Pharaoh, and then the Lord, who is the personal God of the Israelites, the relational name of God. And look at verse 7. Say, verse 7, what does this remind you of to go back there? God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Does that language remind you of anything you were, maybe a Saturday this past summer, for you a Saturday in three weeks, right? Yeah. Um, I will take you. Say, that's language of marriage. That that comes into the Christian marriage ceremony, right? I'll take you. Say, God's saying, I've made promises to my people, and I'll take you, and I'm gonna provide for you, and I'm gonna protect you, and I'll redeem you, and I'll be sufficient for you, Moses that I'm not gonna abandon you, and when it looks like all hope is lost, I'm there because I'm taking you. Say, wonderful, we get promised an inheritance. Again, the provision of God, the protection of God, and isn't this true? You take a big step back. Hey, isn't it true in crisis? In the times in our life where we feel like Moses, we wanna curse God, God's forgotten his promises, I'm miserable, all's going the wrong direction. What do you really long for there? Say, you long for a relationship. Say, well, you, you learned that in marriage prep, don't you, right? Mallory's had a tough day. She's struggling with the boys, comes home and tells me how she's struggling. And what do I do? I say, I reach, I got the perfect tool for this, a lecture. Say, I'll tell you what you need to do. But say, no, that's the worst thing you can do, right? Say, you want relationship. They say, hey, we're in it together. Nothing's gonna separate us. We're gonna press on in the strength that God provides. Say, that's the language. God says, I'll be with you. You're my people. Come under my covenant. I've made promises to you, and I'm keeping my promises to you, and I will always be sufficient for you. So we then move. You say the genealogy might be oddly placed. A lot of genealogies are very important. I know some of you might come from places where you don't read them, but very important, not just textually. But all these names, beyond showing that the Bible's not made up, as some people allege, but what God's saying here in listing all these people, he's saying, none of the people I intend to save are lost, that he knows the names of those who are his. They say, well, there's this conglomerate of people, but God says, no, there's, there's this one and this one, and it kind of boils up, right? Verse 26 and verse 27 writes, hey, these, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom... The, it's as if God's saying, I didn't make a mistake. The world would look at Moses and Aaron and say, God made a mistake, they're inadequate, they can't do it themselves, and God's doubling down. He's saying, no, I know exactly who they are, I know their pedigree, I know their forebears, I know the children they're gonna have, that's exactly who I wanted because they're mine, and I've made a promise and I follow through, and that 
that comes down into the church to us. Friends, as you've surrendered to Christ, he knows you, he cares about you, you have his power, you have his relationship, and you will be sustained by him because he's all we need. And lo and behold, that these two things, the power of God, the relationship of God, are going to do what they've always done for the faithful, and that is revive us as they will revive Moses. The power of God, the relationship of God. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, uh, the liberation of the ethnic Jews from Israel 3,400 years ago. Uh, Shaw, I got a tough week ahead. What does, this have, uh, what does this have to do with me? Thought I came here to actually uh, have a little bit better of a go this week. Here's the point. That the liberation of the Israelites, the people of God, from the physical bondage of Egypt points forward to the much bigger issue, the universal issue, of the bondage each one of us experience because of our sin. You say, you will notice repeatedly in Exodus all the way through the Bible that it will compare our own selfishness, the selfishness of our hearts, to being enslaved. That the more I go my own way, say exactly the paradox of the modern age. Say, wait a second, there we need, what we need here is more Austin. And they say, Bible says, no, you need less Austin, more God is what you need. And I find myself in bondage to myself. That I've been an imperfect son. I've been an imperfect dad, an imperfect spouse, an imperfect friend, an imperfect pastor, whatever your profession is. And I'm in bondage. You notice, look at verse 9. You see this, where the Israelites find themselves, right? That they stop listening to God, Moses, that is God through Moses, because of their broken spirit. I ask you today, that line, broken spirit, does that hit home a little bit? Say so you got a nice clothes and a nice house. You have decent enough friends and fulfilled social life and more than enough responsibility and got to go to the... Brown's game on Thursday night. Say, all that's going very well, but deep down, you know. Say, I'm a person of broken spirit. That there's a problem deep down in here. That I I seem to be intimidated and scared, and I've lost my way, and I, I need help from the outside. You see how God comes into that. He says, that's exactly what I know to be true, and that's why I put forth Jesus to say, don't, don't try to self-actualize, but rather turn that over to him. Agree with God about who he is and who we are, that we're sinners, that we have broken spirits, we're enslaved by ourselves, and that we can be liberated. There's the great emancipation proclamation. Come to the Lord Jesus, repent of your sin, and be freed in him, and be on your mission. God's power, his relationship in Jesus for the freedom to live for our maker and to do his bidding. So... To those of us who are Christians and members of our church, see, I think we too can fall into the trap of forgetting these two things, right? That we fall too quickly on our own strength and our own power, and we say, well, relationship with God, what is that? And I'm not going to the prayer meeting, things like that, to bring us back to say, wait a second here, God, I'm not a, I'm not a clever guy. I, I'm not a, you know, a resume-building self-act, but rather, God, I want to be surrendered to your strength and your power. And Lord, please, as much as it may hurt, Remind me of times in my life where I know that it's only by your grace 
that I could have made it through. Help me to latch on to those memories because I want to know that you're God, that you're a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God and that you, you provide for your people, you protect us, and no matter what comes our way, circumstantially, or even this week, that you are with us. Will you give us that memory? For those of you here, here today, you're not a Christian. Maybe verse 9 speaks to you that no one would know it, but you have a, a broken spirit. Say, so what are you going to do about that? Say, so a lot of offers on the table, I would suspect. Can isolate, can medicate, more and more people are. Or you can do what God has said to do as the one who controls all history, and that is turn over that brokenness and that sin to the Lord Jesus and live. I was reading a biography of a man named John Moriarty, very interesting guy, so I have to qualify this. Moriarty is an Irish philosopher, had an encounter with God, would say that he's a Christian. I just leave it, you know, I, I don't want to judge, but in the biography, he said, he said this. This is the line that, that mattered and what, why I'm bringing him up. He said, I was shattered into seeing. In other words, Moriarty's looking out at the world and he's saying the problems are too big. He said, I found the world starless and fatherless. And he was a broken man. And in that shattering... God gave him sight. And I pray again, you're not a Christian, but you would have a, a broken spirit like Moses to say, you know, sin is an issue in my life and I'm empty and I need help. That God would shatter you into seeing what he's done in Jesus. And you say, God, I come to you on your terms of Jesus. I need him. I need your power. I need a relationship with you. Set me on the path to obey you and to live for your kingdom. Friends, there's real freedom in Christ. That's a great glory to us. It doesn't depend on us, but on him. And for the trying times in which we live, may we be ever more committed to what he will do in us and among us, knowing that he's our provider, our protector, and that he will never let those of us who are his go. Lord, thank you very much for this emancipation proclamation that you deliver, that you redeem, you establish. And as countercultural as it is these days to be your people, right? You're our God. You've made a covenant with us. We're your people. Help us to not lose sight of that, to neglect you, to forget about you, but rather to rely on your power. Oh, Lord, we need that this week to be the family members, friends, professionals that you would want us to be. May we rest on your promise, your unchanging promise. To commit this time to you and let Exodus 6 sink in this week for Christ's sake.